Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi, welcome to the Dynamic Duel Podcast, a weekly show where we review superhero films and debate the superiority between Marvel and DC by comparing their characters in stat-based battle simulations. I'm Johnny DC. And I'm his twin brother, Marvelous Joe. And in this episode, we are doing a duel between the Flash villain, Ragdoll, and the X-Men villain, The Blob. Of course, this is in lead up to episode 325 that's coming out later on this year, where we will pit the Flash's rogues against the Brotherhood of Mutants from the X-Men comics. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to this one. They're both uh, like rubbery characters that can either like deflect or reflect any physical attacks made against them. Like the blob is basically made out of blubber and ragdoll has like no bones in his body, basically. Sort of, yeah. This is going to be a really physical match, I imagine, and I have no idea how it's going to play out. I'm excited for it as well. But we're going to get to that later on in this episode. Before that, we're going to break down the comic book movie news from the past week, of which we finally got the DC slate from James Gunn and Peter Safran. Is it a hard reboot? Is it a soft reboot? Is it good? Is it bad? We'll talk all about it later on. If you're here for the news or you just want to skip ahead to the duel, as always, we list our segment times in our episode description, so feel free to check out the show notes if you want to skip to a particular topic. Real quick, don't forget to join us on Patreon, where we offer ad-free episodes of the show, access to our Discord chat community, where you can chat with Jonathan and I and other fans, and you get access to our Infinity Crisis Marvel vs. DC deck building card game. Check it out right now at patreon.com slash dynamicduel, which is linked in our show notes. Our lowest dynamic 2-0 tier is only 2 bucks a month. And in our fantastic $4 tier, you get all that plus access to our monthly bonus episodes, including blooper reels and top 10 shows, as well as the visual data from our dual episodes at no extra cost. Just a heads up to our patrons, I'm a little bit late on getting that blooper reel out. It's just been a crazy start to February, but I'm going to get it out the day after this episode drops. But we also have our X-Force tier on Patreon, which is $10 a month. It gets you everything else from the previous tiers, and you get to become an executive producer of this show and help us determine our episode content. Again, visit patreon.com slash dynamic duel and pick a tier that works for you. 
If you're interested in supporting the show but not able to join Patreon, then stop by our website, dynamicduel.com, and subscribe to our weekly newsletter where we keep you informed on all things going on with the show and you get free access to the visual data of the results from our latest Duel episode when you sign up and confirm your email. Thanks to everyone who supports the show. Uh, It means a lot to Jonathan and myself. But with that out of the way, quick to the no prize. A No Prize is an award Marvel used to give out up until the 90s to fans. Our version, the Dynamic Duel No Prize, is a digital award we post on Instagram and in our newsletter for the person that we feel gave the best answer to our question of the week. Last week's question, we asked, what is your favorite couple from a Marvel or DC film or television series and why? And this was coming off the news that there's going to be a Harley Quinn, very problematic Valentine's Day special on HBO Max. We got quite a few answers. We'll go ahead and run down our honorable mentions as well as the no prize winner. Our first honorable mention goes to Jacob Bell, who said, What's up, guys? It's Jacob Bell here. I got to go with uh, the best chemistry is obviously Scarlett Johansson and Mark Ruffalo. No, I'm just, I'm totally kidding. Uh, That was awful. No, uh, seriously, Andrew Garfield and Emma Stone from the Amazing Spider-Man movies. By far the best chemistry I've ever seen in a superhero movie um, every time they're on screen together, it just makes me fly. I think they're incredible actors. I think their chemistry is amazing. And, uh, yeah, one of my favorite couples for sure. You know why their chemistry was so good on screen is because it was so good off screen because they were actually dating when they made those movies. Yeah. That sexual tension during the movie was palpable. And now we know why. <laughs> and I mean, it was so good that everyone was legit heartbroken in the second amazing Spider-Man movie when Gwen Stacy died. Absolutely. Yeah, it was tragic. You really felt Peter's grief in that scene. And, you know, the audience had their own grief based on Emma Stone's great portrayal of that character. So great answer, Jacob Bell. Uh, Our next honorable mention goes to Matt Lamb, who said, Hey guys, Matt Lamb here. So I'm going to say Clint and Laura Barton from the Marvel movies and the Hawkeye show. It's great to see the exploration of a couple that's been together for at least two decades. And so now we get to see a relationship that has lasted a long time. Uh, They've had kids together. And that's one of my favorite things about the Hawkeye show was the exploration of them as a couple. Yeah, usually in uh, superhero films and shows, you have the love interest for the main character. But when it comes to Clint Barton and Laura Barton, they were established from the word go. When we realized in Avengers Age of Ultron that Hawkeye had like this secret family. It was really cool to learn in the Hawkeye television show that Laura Barton was actually an agent of S.H.I.E.L.D., Agent 19, a.k.a. Mockingbird. I think one of the most interesting things about that relationship, though, is that it's got to be tough knowing that your spouse or your partner is off, you know, risking their life and endangering themselves. But they seem to have such a great, like, understanding of each other and and what's going on. And maybe that has to do with the fact that she was a S.H.I.E.L.D. agent, but we didn't know that right off the bat. So she just came across as, like, very extremely understanding, which was really cool. Yeah, and, like, that was all given context at the end of Hawkeye. You know, he and Laura probably worked a few missions together. Great answer, Matt Lamb. Our final honorable mention goes to Scott Camacho, who said, Normally I'd pick Superman and Lois, you know, just with the Lois and Clark. But I'm going to go with Batman and Catwoman. Recently, if you look back on the Injustice comics and the games, when Damien killed Dick Grayson and Batman was distraught, Catwoman was the only person to comfort him he was crying in front of Catwoman. It's, I, their connection just seems way stronger 
than anyone in yeah, it looks like he was cut off at the end there. But uh, yeah, Catwoman and Batman, whether it's Injustice, the animated film, or like even Batman Returns and most recently the Batman, their relationship is complicated because, of course, they started off as enemies, albeit ones with like a passion for each other. And you can't say the same thing about like Superman and Lois or even something like, you know, Wonder Woman and Steve Trevor. It's pretty unique in comics, I think. But of course, over the years, you know, they grew closer and closer and became allies. And now they're like the best of partners. Yeah. And of all the relationship evolutions that have taken place uh, out of all couples and comics, I definitely think that Batman and Catwoman have made the greatest progress overall. It's really fascinating to see where things have gone for them. So great answer, Scott Camacho. We want to give a big thanks to Matt Estes, who also visited our website, hit the record button and left an answer for us. Thank you so much for doing that. But the winner of this week's snow prize is... Rick McGrew from the Retronomapod, who said, Hey guys, Rick from the Retronomapod. Uh, Deadpool and Colossus from the Deadpool movies. Uh, they're the best kind of odd couple um, in Marvel or DC. Um, they balance each other out pretty well, and they got a pretty good relationship, and it kind of goes through the ups and downs that a relationship does. So if by the ups and downs of normal relationships, you mean like, you know, are they even a couple or not is a great point. We know that, um, you know, in the comics and in the movies, Deadpool is pansexual and he has implied a heavy attraction to Colossus in the films. There's definitely no implication that Colossus feels the same way about Deadpool. In the comics, Colossus is straight, although the ultimate version of Colossus in the comics, he was gay. So I think the Deadpool movies kind of play off of the precedents that have been established in the comics. And it's kind of like this. Well, Izzy, isn't he? What's going on here? But either way, it's hilarious the way they bring humor to it in the films. Even at the end of Deadpool 2, when Wade sees Vanessa again, like in heaven, and he's like, don't fuck Elvis. And she's like, don't fuck Colossus. And he's like, what? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, let's see if these romantic feelings extend to Hugh Jackman's Logan in any way in the upcoming sequel. Yeah, yeah, we'll see. There might be some bromance elements there. That'll be pretty funny. Well, great answer, Rick McGrew. You win this week's no prize. If you, the listener, want a shot at winning your own no prize, stay tuned to later on in this episode when we'll be asking another question of the week. And now that that's done, on to the news! Okay, so shortly after James Gunn and Peter Safran like, became the heads of DC Studios last year, they announced that they would reveal the first details of the upcoming DC film slate by January. So from New Year's Day to every day after, I swore that (laughs) that day was the day that James Gunn was going to bring clarity to, you know, whether or not this is going to be rebooting a new DC universe or, you know, something different. From my perspective, I thought like a full reboot was a for sure thing, especially after the announcement that James Gunn's first film would be a young Superman film without Henry Cavill. And a full-on reboot was what I was most hoping for, you know, considering that the Batman showed audiences what, like, caliber of film we could get without any continuity baggage. But, you know, since James Gunn directed The Suicide Squad, people were saying, you know, he would want to keep those actors. And I was just pulling my hair out, like, all January, waiting to learn about DC's future. And, of course, Gunn and Safran waited until the last possible moment for their announcement. Like, we learned that the announcement was coming the day before it dropped on January 31st. And I was super excited. I figured we would only get, like, two to three projects announced, but we ended up getting freaking ten 
which just blew my mind. Yeah, I was initially suspecting that we were only going to get like two to three movie announcements and a show announcement, and that's it. Yeah. But the quantity of projects that was announced actually was impressive. Right, right. So on January 30th, a bunch of journalists were invited to Warner Brothers Studios, where Gunn and Saffron gave a presentation that broke everything down. And Gunn also released a video explaining everything on various social media sites that broke everything down as well. And of course, he started with the upcoming films that we have for DC this year, starting with Shazam, which Gunn said leads straight into The Flash, which I didn't realize that. But The Flash, he described as a reset for the DCU as a whole, which was interesting, I thought. So... After The Flash, of course, comes Blue Beetle, which I guess The Flash leads into that. And Blue Beetle leads into Aquaman 2. So after Aquaman 2 come Gunn and Saffron's first 10 projects under DC Studios. Chapter 1 of their 10-year plan, a chapter they've named Gods and Monsters. So their first project is an animated series for HBO Max called Creature Commandos. If you've listened to this podcast for a while, if you've listened to like our Frankenstein versus Elsa Bloodstone episode, you know about the Creature Commandos and how freaking awesome they are. It appears Weasel is in this series alongside characters like Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein and, surprise, Rick Flagg Sr., who of course is the father of Rick Flagg from the Suicide Squad films. Yeah, my only exposure to Creature Commandos beyond our dual episode with Frankenstein was the animated short that DC had produced where essentially they put Sergeant Rock in charge of the Creature Commandos for this World War II adventure. Yeah, that was a fantastic animated short for DC Showcase. It was terrific. If this new show is anything like that short, I think it's going to be awesome. It's going to be a lot of fun. Well, James Gunn has written all of the episodes for it, so I'm sure it's going to be a lot more funny or at least in the same tone as something like the Suicide Squad or Peacemaker, since it's going to have characters from there. But uh, I guess there's also the potential for characters from Creature Commandos to also appear in upcoming DCU projects. Right. I remember Gunn saying that the actors who lend their voices to the animated projects can also show up in live action and vice versa if the live action actors end up appearing in animation. Right. Yeah. But it appears Creature Commandos leads into Waller, another HBO Max series that is sort of a quasi-sequel to Peacemaker and kind of deals with the ramifications that happened at the end of that show. And this was the bit of news that really confused me, because if The Flash reset the DCU, then how does Peacemaker, which takes place before The Flash, lead into Waller? I rationalized it that, you know, the Flash may reset DC's continuity, but that reset would take place over like a year and a half, essentially, while James Gunn wrapped up any loose threads and just kind of like finished the projects that had started prior to him and Saffron taking over DC Studios. So the project following Waller is a film, Superman Legacy, and that's what Gunn described in his video as the true start of the DCU. So I imagined that there's the DCU and there's the past DCEU. By this point, I'm still very confused, but also very, very excited to learn that the title of the next film is Superman Legacy, which I think is a great title for a Superman. And the way they describe the film, too, they seem to have a great grasp of the character of Superman by describing him as a kind character in a world where kindness isn't really fashionable. I think a lot of people who had beef with the characterization of Superman in Man of Steel are going to be much more happy with this Superman Legacy version of the character. 
yeah, hopefully it seems like they're going with a much more classic rendition of the character. Apparently based off of All-Star Superman, which was a comic book series written by Grant Morrison. Well, I don't know if it's based off of that particular storyline, but I guess a lot of inspiration from Grant Morrison's work on both Superman and Batman is serving as inspiration for the DCU as a whole, according to James Gunn. Grant Morrison and Alan Moore have a major influence on Gunn's universe. Now, James Gunn is writing Superman Legacy, but there's still no word as to whether he will direct it as well. The film does have a release date. It's set for July 11th, 2025, which is actually before the Batman sequel, Batman Part 2. That's coming out in October of the same year. What I thought was really interesting is that James Gunn said that Superman Legacy led directly into an Authority film. If you're not familiar with the Authority, it was essentially a Bad Boys Justice League from Wildstorm Comics, which was an imprint of DC and later absorbed into the DC continuity proper. Yeah, the issue I have with the Authority being made into a film is that the Authority was so clearly influenced by the Justice League. You know, the characters like Apollo and Midnighter being analogs to Superman and Batman, kind of like in the same way that Squadron Supreme was inspired by the Justice League. So to have a team within this universe before the Justice League shows up is weird. And when the Justice League eventually does appear, it's going to feel weirdly reverse derivative, you know? Yeah, and I felt the same way. I, I still feel the same way about the same of all the projects that were announced, the authority is the one I'm least looking forward to. I think the reason they're even making this movie is to play off of the success of something like The Boys. This is like DC's version of The Boys. I also think that if Superman Legacy leads into the authority, then the authority is probably going to serve as a foil for Superman in his movie, possibly, which I think is great. You know, it's sort of like Superman versus the elite or the you know famous comic book uh, Superman. I think it was number 775. What's so funny about truth, justice and the American way where Superman takes on these like modern anti-heroes with like these chips on their shoulders. I think it'll be a good way to show Superman being more Superman by pitting him against someone that's very not like Superman or what people believe Superman should be. Well, we don't know if they're going to go up against each other at all. So no, you're right. Yeah, we don't know what's going to happen with the Authority movie, but we know that it's coming after Superman Legacy. And I guess between Superman Legacy and the Authority, though, we will be getting a TV series called Lanterns, which is probably the number one thing I'm most excited about on this entire slate. It's being described as a true detective type series starring the characters of Hal Jordan and Jon Stewart, where they investigate a mystery on Earth. Now, we've supposedly had a Green Lantern series coming out forever for HBO Max that was being helmed by Greg Berlanti. I guess that's no longer a thing, but I'm still glad that we are getting a Green Lantern TV series. James Gunn described the series as being crucial to the overall 10-year plan that they have. It's a little interesting that Berlanti's show is going to be like a space opera and Gunn's show is going to be much more earthbound because I kind of thought that the appeal of the Lanterns was that they're like space police. So it'll be interesting where this goes. I am a huge fan of True Detective, so could be interesting. Yeah, and speaking of hot HBO Max series, James Gunn next described a Paradise Lost series as Game of Thrones-esque. Now, there's no word as to whether or not Wonder Woman will be featured in this, and there's no word whether Gal Gadot would reprise her role as Wonder Woman if she does appear in the series. But I think a big clue as to whether she would or not is whether or not they use the same cast from the Wonder Woman film, like Queen Hippolyta and Antiope, you know. We'll see. 
I am intrigued by it, and I think it's a good idea for a series, though I am kind of disappointed that we're not getting a straight-up Wonder Woman project, though I guess this is as good a way to introduce the lore behind Wonder Woman without actually doing a Wonder Woman film. So following that project, he moved on to a Brave and the Bold film that will be starring Batman and Robin, specifically Damian Wayne as Robin, which is Batman's son. This took me by surprise for sure. I love Damian Wayne, but I was really hoping that this new DC universe that James Gunn was establishing would start with Dick Grayson as Robin. So it kind of feels like we're entering another universe where Batman has a lot more history and experience than Superman, which I don't love, but uh, I am excited to see what James Gunn can do with Damian Wayne. That's the whole appeal of this movie. Yeah, hopefully we get to see some of the other Robins within this film. James Gunn did say that they were going to be building on the Bat family, which is something we haven't really got to see in any of the other Batman films. So that should be exciting. You know, I want to see Dick Grayson, Jason Todd, Barbara Gordon, maybe even Tim Drake. That'd be great. Yeah, I mean, of course, we're going to be having Matt Reeves' Batverse happening concurrently with the DCU. So we don't know if we're going to get Dick Grayson maybe in the Batman Part 2 or not, or who else we'll see, maybe Batgirl. But uh, honestly, I think audiences are going to be confused. I'm both looking forward to this one and not looking forward to this. I haven't really made up my mind as to whether I'm excited for it or not. It's Batman. I feel like I should be excited, but I don't know. I want things to make sense, too. Yeah. So up next was Booster Gold. It's going to be a television series for HBO Max. This was a huge surprise as well. I've always wanted a Booster Gold film because I think he's a great character. I didn't think he would be part of the DCU this early on, but I'm super excited. And I really hope that Chris Pratt plays the character. No, I'm sorry. What? I mean, he'd be great for it, but I think the character would be too similar to Star-Lord. His portrayal of the character would be too similar. Maybe. You don't know. He's a good actor. We'll see. Booster Gold seems right up James Gunn's alley. Just, you know, like this obscure kind of character that's humorous. So I think it'll turn out really good. Following Booster Gold, we learned about Supergirl, Woman of Tomorrow. This film is based on a comic series written by Tom King that came out in 2021 and 2022. So not too long ago. And apparently it was fantastic. I haven't read it yet, but everything I hear about it is great. It looks like they're really going to play up on the differences between Superman, who, you know, was raised on Earth, and Supergirl, who essentially saw everyone she loved die from Krypton. You know, she's a much harder superhero than Superman. And I guess she's going to be traveling around space with a young girl and even Crypto in a revenge tale, which I thought was pretty interesting. Yeah, you know, she's going to be in the upcoming Flash movie. It's unclear whether or not Sasha Kaye will reprise her role for this Supergirl movie. Yeah, word on the street is that Sasha Kaye as Supergirl and Michael Keaton as Bruce Wayne have been pulled from the end of the Flash movie because that was supposed to be a setup for a new universe where, you know, Michael Keaton's Batman was the Bruce Wayne of the universe and there was no Superman. There was just Supergirl. Of course, those plans have been scrapped, you know, in favor of James Gunn's universe. So I guess it's still up in the air as to who will be Supergirl, though I would be surprised if it was still going to be Sasha Kaye. The last project that was announced was a Swamp Thing film that apparently James Mangold is in talks to direct. And I have no idea how they will do a better job than the Swamp Thing series that was released on DC Universe a few years back, produced by James Wan. But uh, I'm super excited for this project. Like, this is one of my like top three favorite projects that they announced because I'm a huge fan of Swamp Thing. And it sounds like this film will be based on Alan Moore's take for the character, which basically reinvented the character. It's really interesting that they're mixing horror into this whole chapter that they want to tell. 
but I'm really excited that they will be legit exploring new genres. One of the most interesting things that came out of this whole presentation from James Gunn and Peter Safran was that they don't want to flirt with a genre. They want to go headfirst into different types of genres and tones and things like that, really focusing on story in a way that they feel studios have been dismissing for big tentpole blockbuster films. Well, I think the most positive takeaway from Gunn's presentation was his approach to writing and the writers on these projects, basically saying that they're not going to be beholden to release dates. They're going to focus more on getting the script right before production begins. Yeah, James Gunn was saying how like many blockbuster films, and I think he was pointing the finger at Marvel, that they start filming before the third act is even finished being written. Right, yeah, we've heard plenty of anecdotes from actors and other production staff talking about how sometimes they'd get rewritten scenes on the day and things like that, which is kind of scary to think about from, you know, an investor standpoint. You're putting all this money into this film that's not fully fleshed out by the time it's being made. So I think Gunn definitely has the right approach, and I think it's going to find him with a lot of success in these films. I guess they will still continue to tell stories outside of like this main storyline that they want to tell. And those will be classified under an Elseworlds banner. And that'll encompass films like the Batman Part 2, the Joker sequel, and even Teen Titans Go and things like that. So that was interesting. That was exciting. That was something they should have done a long time ago, honestly. Yeah, I agree. I love me some Elseworlds stories. And it's nice that they're going to like clearly define what those are. But after all of this news, I thought I had a really clear idea of what the timeline is for the upcoming DC projects. You know, I thought, you know, the Flash is a reset and then that reset essentially lasts a year and a half, like I mentioned before. And then things really get kicked off with Superman Legacy in the birth of this brand new, fresh DC universe with new actors and new stories. And I actually made a graphic of it that I posted to social media and uh, James Gunn himself shot down my graphic <laughs> saying that Waller and Creature Commandos were actually a part of the DCU. So from what I could gather is that everything from, you know, Man of Steel to Batman 89 to the upcoming projects that they announced is considered DCU and that the Flash movie is less of a Flashpoint event that'll lead to a continuity reboot a la The New 52 and more like something like Crisis on Infinite Earths, where some characters' pasts are still there and still remain, but some characters got rebooted histories, like Superman specifically. And I kind of hate that, I'm not going to lie, because I really liked Henry Cavill as Superman and Ben Affleck as Batman, and it's going to be really sad that some actors have to go and some get to stay. It doesn't quite seem fair. If it were up to me, I would have just burned everything to the ground and just started anew in the ashes. And I'm kind of heartbroken that it's not going to be that way. Like things are still really confusing and it kind of just feels like more of the same, except that James Gunn is the new Zack Snyder and Peter Safran is the new Walter Hamada. Well, I mean, Hamada's approach was everything's a multiverse and we just want to do projects that creators are excited about. But James Gunn ripped into Hamada talking about how the studio was playing fast and loose with the IP and it was a fucked system. Yeah, he's uh, pretty candid about that. That was crazy when I was reading that article. Yeah. <laughs> Regarding James Gunn responding to your tweet, it's pretty cool, but also it's a little bit embarrassing because your timeline image that you posted up there is still there. People are still liking that. And I feel like we're spreading misinformation. 
Well, I, mean, I don't want to take it down because I don't want to remove the context of what he's talking about because a lot of people are still liking his tweet as well. And, you know, as for him, like essentially embarrassing me on social media, it's the <laughs> one guy who could have, you know, because I was arguing with everybody that like my vision is accurate, you guys, I swear. And, you know, I'm kind of glad that I was put in my place by him of all people. And, you know, honestly, humility is a good thing. After <laughs> Rotten Tomatoes, I had a big head anyway. So this is probably really good for me. Yeah, I even had the gall to like reach out to him on Twitter and ask if he wanted to be on this show. He hasn't responded yet, but uh, I haven't lost out hope that maybe he will. It's not going to happen. Yeah, yeah, you're probably right. Overall, when it comes to this slate, it's hard to get excited by it conceptually because I thought we were going to get something that was a little bit more clear as to the overall narrative that the universe was going in. You know, something like phase one of Marvel was clearly building toward the Avengers. So I kind of assumed that we were going to get like a lot of Justice League project announcements here that would lead to, you know, a big Justice League film. But all these projects are so disparate and seemingly disconnected, it's hard to see what Gunn's vision is here. I'm with you. I have a really hard time figuring out what story they're trying to tell with this slate of 10 projects. If you asked me if I was excited by it, I would probably tell you that I was excited for the projects that were announced, but disappointed in the overarching direction of DC Studios as a whole. I'm with you. I totally thought that, you know, we would start off with products featuring the Trinity and that would be leading to a Justice League film. It just seemed to make so much sense. But I guess, you know, we did kind of already get that with the Snyderverse. And I'm not sure if they just don't want to rehash the same territory or not. But I'm really curious to see where this goes. It seems like basically the DC slate is not what you were expecting. It is a little bit confusing to see how it's all working together. And so, yeah, I'm a little bit disappointed by what the announcement ultimately was. That being said, our confusion has no bearing as to whether or not these projects are good. Just because yes. I'm, the slate isn't what I wanted it to be or what I expected. You know, once we go see Superman Legacy and it's like the most amazing Superman movie of all time. If that happens, I think a lot of faith will be restored in what Gunn's trying to do here. Yeah, I agree. Honestly, Superman Legacy is probably going to make or break this whole universe for me. I feel like it's not the universe that DC fans deserved, but it's probably the one that we need right now, considering we're so far behind Marvel in terms of a like connected, overarching storyline that spans not only film, but television and gaming and animation. So I just have to hold out hope that it's going to be fantastic. But uh, with the slate revealed, that brings us to our question of the week. Which of the 10 upcoming DC projects announced are you most and least looking forward to and why? Record your answer at dynamicduel.com by clicking on the red microphone button in the bottom right hand corner, which will prompt you to leave us a voicemail. Your message could be up to 30 seconds long. Don't forget to leave your name in case we include you on the podcast. We'll pick our favorite answer and award that person a Dynamic Duel no prize that we'll post to Instagram and our email newsletter. Be sure to answer before February 11th. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? 
No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. But that does it for all the news from this episode. Now let's move on to the main event where we find out who's going to win in a fight between the Flash villain Ragdoll and the X-Men villain The Blob. Okay, so Ragdoll versus The Blob. Both villainous characters that, as Joseph mentioned earlier, are pretty hard to damage physically. Um, And really, that's what came down to us doing this match. There are a few other characters we were considering for the blob, like maybe Black Hole from DC. But we've been looking forward to doing a ragdoll match for some time because we just think he's a really cool character. And once we kind of realized that the ragdoll and blob are kind of opposites and that one is super freaking skinny and one is super freaking fat, (laughs) that they might be a perfect pairing for each other. Yeah, we haven't put in the stats for this matchup yet, obviously, but I can already tell you that the blob is going to be heavy in the durability and strength department. But I think the matchup is going to be balanced out by Ragdoll's enhanced evasiveness and intelligence. I have no idea how the speculation is going to go, but I think it's going to be a blast just having them bounce off each other, basically, this whole fight. If you've seen all the seasons of The Flash, you've seen Ragdoll on there. He's actually pretty freaky on there. Actually, that version looks a lot like the son of the original Ragdoll from the comics. Oh, really? I haven't seen that. The Blob has also made a live action appearance. He, of course, was in the horrible X-Men Origins Wolverine movie. That's right. He did have like the best line in that movie when he was like, did you just call me Blob? (laughs) And Wolverine was like, no, but I mean... (laughs) So he called him Bub. Yeah, I did like the actor. Yeah, yeah, he was good. If you've never listened to one of our dual episodes before, the way we determine a winner between these two characters is by running 1000 Monte Carlo simulations using their statistics. A Monte Carlo simulation is a probabilistic model used to determine outcomes through random sampling. And in our case, it randomizes statistics along a normal distribution, which is a bell curve, as a way to simulate the many variables that can occur during battle. The stat parameters we use are based on the official Marvel power grid, and we use that criteria to extrapolate the DC character stats. We've included some additional stat categories of our own, such as range, damage potential, versatility, and perception, in order to create a more complete and robust simulation. Running these 1000 simulations gives us a percentage of wins for each character, and we declare the one with the higher percentage to be the ultimate victor, considering that they're more likely to win any given battle. No character ever wins 100% of the time. Comics have shown that there's usually a way for Batman to defeat Superman. So we feel our method falls in line with the precedents that have been established in the comic book stories. And we use this method because it was the least subjective, most unbiased way to determine who would win. Of course, we are both heavily biased toward our respective allegiances. So instead of debating these matches forever, we just let the math decide for us. There are no fan votes here and no relying on just feats. 
Before we run the simulations, though, we like to break down each character's histories and abilities before improvising a scenario on how we imagine one of the 1,000 simulations we run would play out beat for beat. And I believe it's my turn to go first with the Marvel character, so let me go ahead and tell you all about the Blob. Frederick Dukes was born in Lubbock, Texas. Growing up, he was an obese child, but it wasn't until his teen years that he developed his mutant physiology, which included pliable body fat, elastic skin, and the power to increase his personal gravity. Not knowing anything about mutants or mutation, Fred just considered himself a freak and put his talents on display as a carnival sideshow strongman called The Blob, where his act consisted of having others try and push him or move him as he stood. He didn't enjoy his time working there, but considered it better than being unemployed and starving, as his size made it difficult for him to find other work. It was during this time that Fred was discovered by Professor Charles Xavier, the telepathic leader of the X-Men, a mutant superhero team that you can learn more about in our Titans vs. X-Men episode. The team reached out to Fred and invited him to their school base in Westchester, New York, where they explained his mutant status and offered him a place on their team. Fred declined their offer, feeling that the rest of the X-Men, Cyclops, Jean Grey, Beast, Iceman, and Angel, were all inferior to him. Realizing that Fred's obnoxious attitude and untrustworthy nature could expose the team and put them at risk, Professor X determined that Fred's memory of the X-Men would have to be erased. Angered by this, Fred escaped the X-Mansion back to the carnival and brought back a group of carnival performers to attack the X-Men. Fred and the Carnies were defeated, however, and Fred's memories of the events were erased. Later on, the mutant villain Magneto recruited Fred to his Brotherhood of Mutants team where a head injury resulted in his memories and hatred of the X-Men being restored. During the Brotherhood's attack on the heroes, Magneto launched a set of missiles at the X-Men, not caring that Fred was in the way. The missiles struck Fred, and though he was unharmed, he realized that Magneto had no real concern for his safety, and he quit the Brotherhood. He would later, though, get recruited into a later incarnation of the team, this time led by the mutant Mystique, as part of her plot to assassinate Senator Robert Kelly, who had recently introduced the Mutant Registration Act, which was legislation that would require mutants to disclose their identities and abilities to the government. Little did the Brotherhood know that their actions would result in the dystopian future timeline known as the Days of Future Past, wherein mutant hunting sentinel robots would take over North America. Luckily, a future version of the mutant hero Kitty Pride was able to psychically go back in time, warn the X-Men of the impending attack, help defeat Fred and the Brotherhood, and save Senator Kelly's life. Fred would go on to fight other heroes such as the Avengers, the Hulk, and Spider-Man before joining his fellow Brotherhood members in the newly rebranded Freedom Force team. Due to Mystique's manipulations through her undercover position at the US Pentagon, she convinced the US Commission on Superhuman Activities to pardon the Brotherhood of its past crimes and to use them instead as federal agents. Working for the government, Freedom Force's first task was to capture Magneto, who then surrendered to stand trial. Eventually, Freedom Force disbanded after a botched mission to rescue a scientist went south, but Fred and the team would go on to reform the Brotherhood of Mutants at one point with Fred as the leader of the team. He served under the evil psychic entity known as Onslaught, who taught him how he could shift his gelatinous mass throughout his body to do things like increase the size of his fists. 
After Onslaught was defeated, Fred was forced to join a new team called X-Corps, led by the former X-Men member Banshee, who felt that the best approach to achieve Professor X's peaceful coexistence between humans and mutants was to have a mutant police force to formally regulate the activities of other mutants. Fred and the X-Corps operated throughout Europe, but it was eventually revealed that Banshee had used the illusion-casting powers of Mastermind to placate the more villainous members of that team, including Fred. In retaliation to this knowledge, those villainous manipulated team members lashed out, but Fred was eventually subdued by the mutant Stacy X with her pheromone control powers. When the Scarlet Witch, in a fit of madness, caused a vast majority of mutants across the globe to lose their abilities, Fred suddenly found himself powerless. Without his pliable mass, he was left with huge folds of skin hung loose on his now tiny frame, which caused him to become depressed and suicidal. Without his mutant power, he wasn't obese, he was skinny? Yeah, but the skin didn't shrink down with him. Wow. Later, Fred turned things around through surgery, and he became a weight loss guru, though he still pined for the return of his old powers. <laughs> he eventually did get them back, first through the drug known as mutant growth hormone, and later when a clone of Mr. Sinister created a mutant power-granting virus called Mothervine. When the mutant race formed their own sovereign nation on the sentient island of Krakoa, Fred relocated there and opened up a tiki bar called the Green Lagoon, where he now bartends. And that's his history. Powers-wise, the Blob has the mutant power of an enhanced physiology, which gives him this extremely obese body. His fat is pliable and amorphous, and combined with his resilient elastic skin, it makes him highly durable and resistant to injury. All but the most powerful of physical forces directed against Blob, be they blunt or sharp, simply get absorbed by his incredible body mass, and from there are either trapped until he lets go or reflected back. Because of Blob's increased mass, he has increased strength and can lift around 20 tons. And he can shift his fat somewhat to certain areas of his body, like to give himself larger fists. His skin has no pain receptors, so he feels no external pain. In addition, Blob can increase his personal gravity toward the ground beneath him, making him virtually immovable. This gravity field extends about 5 feet below his center of balance, so if he was hit hard enough to uproot him, he would take a sizable chunk of whatever he was standing on along with him. Finally, despite being a man of considerable size, Blob retains the speed and agility of a man of regular size and athletic training. His only vulnerabilities are the areas on his body that aren't covered in skin. And that's the blob. So like his eyes and... His eyes, his mouth, his ears, his nose, other holes, you know. (laughs) Gross. I had forgotten that the blob was a carnival worker. That's something that Ragdoll also was. So there's one more connection that they have in common. Nice. But uh, let me tell you more about Ragdoll. Now, the Earth 2 version of Peter Merkel was the son of a carnival sideshow barker and was born triple jointed. He was raised in the carnival and became one of its acts as a contortionist and eccentric dancer. When the carnival went bankrupt in the 1940s, Peter lost his job and wandered the streets, impoverished. While observing toys being unloaded at a department store's loading dock, Peter realized he could fit in one of the large dolls that he had seen. Doing just that and going unnoticed as a lifeless rag doll within the department store until after it closed, he was able to successfully loot it. Emboldened, Peter decided to become a costumed criminal known as Ragdoll. 
Eventually, his success garnered him fame within the criminal underworld, and he attracted henchmen that aided him in his burglaries. Once, Peter hid in a box and had his henchmen deliver him as a package to a young socialite named Gerald Cummings, who was planning a treasure hunt for the wealthy in Keystone City. Assuming Peter was just a large doll, Gerald planned the event in front of him with help from Joan Williams, who was the girlfriend of Jay Garrick, aka The Flash. You can learn more about Jay Garrick in our Flash vs. Electro episode. As the treasure hunt was underway, Peter chloroformed Joan and stole the final prize, which was $150,000 worth of defense bonds. The Flash, however, was able to capture Peter and literally tie him in knots before putting him behind bars. Decades later, Peter was brainwashed by the Flash villain The Thinker into committing a series of heists involving toy dolls. The Thinker orchestrated mistakes that would befall the Flash in an effort to humiliate and demoralize him. Unfortunately for the Thinker, the Earth-1 version of the Flash, Barry Allen, who you can learn more about in our Flash vs. Quicksilver episode, had stopped by Earth-2 and helped Jay Garrick apprehend Peter, who had no recollection of his crimes. After replacing Peter with an actual ragdoll, the Flashes were able to trap the Thinker and imprison both villains. By the early 80s, Peter became a founding member of the second generation of the secret society of supervillains, led by the Ultra-Humanites. The Society took on both the Justice League and Justice Society, who you can learn more about in their team duels against the Avengers and Fantastic Four respectively, before traveling back in time to the 1940s to take on the All-Star Squadron. After being trapped in limbo for a time, Peter returned to the late 80s, where the multiverse had been merged into one universe after the Crisis on Infinite Earths event. During this time, he utilized talents learned from his father, the Carnival Barker, to hypnotize people, and he formed a cult following in Opal City, the home of Starman, who you can learn more about in our Stargirl vs. Darkhawk episode. Peter orchestrated a crime wave throughout Opal City, forcing Starman to call in reinforcements from the Justice Society for help. When Peter was finally captured, he threatened the lives of the hero's families before slipping free from his restraints at which point, in the confusion, Starman killed Peter. His body was stolen from the morgue by his cult followers, however, who were able to bring Peter back to life. Peter lied low for years, during which time he fathered numerous children with the women from his cult, and a mentally unbalanced imposter named Colby Zag posed as the original ragdoll for a time. Eventually, the aged Peter was approached by the demon lord Neron, who granted him restored youth and enhanced flexibility in exchange for his soul. With the help of his cult, Peter and several other supervillains aided a man named Simon Culp in taking over Opal City. After receiving radiation poisoning in a battle against the radioactive Dr. Phosphorus, Starman faced Peter once again after killing him in their last encounter. Starman challenged Peter to kill him and spare him the slow death from cancer he was going to endure, at which point Peter turned and walked away from the fight. By this point, one of Peter's children, named Peter Merkel Jr., had grown to adulthood. Peter Jr. was born with normal joint movement and was raised in the ragdoll's abusive cult with no knowledge of who his mother was. Suffering from body dysmorphia, Peter Jr. had his genitals removed as a teenager, and as an adult, he began a series of surgeries to replace all of his joints with fully rotating and self-lubricating cybernetic joints in order to emulate and please his father. 
After hundreds of surgeries taking place over a period of 12 years, the process was complete, though it left him physically scarred and he was forced to regularly apply a special moisturizer to his skin to prevent his joints from tearing through. Though Peter Jr. was able to achieve a level of flexibility and strength that surpassed his father, Peter Sr. was not impressed. Nonetheless, Peter Jr. took on the name Ragdoll and joined a team of villainous mercenaries and anti-heroes known as the Secret Six, where he developed a close friendship with a teammate and reformed Parademon from Apocalypse known as Parademon. The Secret Six were eventually attacked by the Secret Society of Supervillains, whose roster included, at the time, Peter Sr. for not joining their ranks. Peter Sr. nearly killed Peter Jr., though Parademon intervened and not long after sacrificed itself in order to protect Peter Jr. and the Secret Six from the Society. Peter Sr. then left the Secret Society to join the Injustice Society, where he was killed after betraying his teammates. Peter Jr., meanwhile, remained with the Secret Six despite mourning the loss of Parademon. During one hired job, the Secret Six had to fight against other supervillains hired by a mysterious crime boss known as Junior to retrieve a mystical Get Out of Hell free card. Junior was eventually revealed to be Peter Jr.'s half-sister, Alex. After several adventures, the Get Out of Hell free card was stolen from the Secret Six's safe and Peter Jr. was accused by his teammates of stealing it. Initially denying it was him, he later confessed after being nearly killed that he wanted to use it to bring Parademon back to life. Peter Jr. used the card to escape to Hell, where he learned that because he was conceived by a father with no soul, Peter Jr. also had no soul himself and was prophesied to eventually rule Hell. After learning that Parademon wanted to stay in Hell because it reminded him of Apocalypse, Peter Jr. left Hell with the Secret Six, whom he helped escape with the team leader's formerly deceased lover. When Bane took control of the Secret Six and used them to take over Gotham, the team was overwhelmed by a small army of heroes, and Peter Jr. and the others were imprisoned. In the post-Flashpoint timeline, Peter Jr. became an assassin for hire who was imprisoned after a battle with Batgirl and died as a member of the Suicide Squad. And that's his history so far. For this match, I'll be going with the Peter Merkel Jr. version of Ragdoll. And powers-wise, Ragdoll's cybernetic joints can bend, rotate, and slightly extend in any direction, granting him extreme flexibility and allowing him to contort and compress his body into impossible positions. His malleable physical nature also allows him to absorb most concussive forces and attacks. His signature move is to bind his opponents with his limbs and compress them like a boa constrictor until they suffocate. He's a skilled acrobat and martial artist, and he often carries a knife. And that's Ragdoll. So you're going with the junior version of the Ragdoll character. Why him over the senior version? Honestly, what it came down to was just using the most well-known version of the Ragdoll character. Um, and that's the version that was in the Flash TV show, which most closely resembles... Uh, the junior version of Ragdoll. Plus the junior version, you know, he could bend in ways that the senior version can't. I don't know if I could argue that he's superior, but I think stat-wise he will be. Okay. All right. Well, let's see how this goes. Because uh, now that we've gotten their histories and abilities out of the way, let's speculate on how one of the 1,000 simulated matches will go. The winner is determined by simulations, not the speculation, but it's fun to imagine how this fight could play out. 
We don't set any rules for this match other than the characters don't know anything about each other going in, except that the other character is a threat that needs to be put down. And we say that they start off about 50 meters apart in an environment that has no bearing on the match itself, because we don't take stats for the environment. And plus, certain characters have advantages in some environments over others, and we want these characters to win on their own merit. So let's get into it. Ragdoll and Blob meet on the battlefield. Who goes first? Okay, based on what I know about the Blob, I'd say he's a very stationary character. So I think it makes sense for Ragdoll to make the first move. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, so I'm gonna say he's gonna start by like bending forward and twisting his torso all the way around. So he ends up like on all fours in this arched position, like a spider. And he's just gonna <laughs> run fast at Blob in this frightening exorcist type way, just giggling. It's gonna freak Blob out. <laughs> yeah, Blob is gonna be like, "What the hell?" <laughs> and uh, okay, Ragdoll's coming at Blob in like this freaky way. And as he's coming, Blob's going to like leap up into the air and he's going to be like, I'm going to squash you like a bug. And he increases his personal gravity while he's in the air. So he just comes down from the air like a meteor and just slam cannonballs right on top of Ragdoll, squishing him and creating this big crater. Okay, so, you know, Blob is going to stand up inside this crater and uh, he's going to look down and surprise, like Ragdoll's not there. Guess where he is? Atomized. That's right. Ragdoll's in his ass crack, right? Which I'm sure is pretty big. So Ragdoll's not going to have like any problem fitting inside of it. That's gross. I feel like hiding in Blob's crack would also kill you. I mean, like for the average guy, I'm pretty sure it would. But this is Ragdoll, okay? okay. So once Blob stands up, that's when Ragdoll, he's just going to slither out of his crack. And uh, he's just going to like somersault up Blob's back to his <laughs> neck, which he like wraps his whole body around and just squeezes, compresses his body. He's going to choke out the Blob. Okay, well, actually, Black Cat, you know, the Spider-Man villain, once tried to choke out the Blob by garroting him. But it didn't work because the Blob has so much neck fat that you just can't get through it to his trachea. Hmm. So basically, Blob's just laughing at Ragdoll's attempt to choke him out. He's going to pry him off of his neck, and he's going to hold Ragdoll in front of him, hanging him upside down by one of his ankles. And then with his other hand, Blob is going to punch Ragdoll like right in the gut, like a punching bag, just knocking him out. No, uh, because Ragdoll, you know, he's not easily harmed by concussive or like blunt attacks like that. Mm -hmm. So Ragdoll's just going to use the momentum from this punch to like swing his whole <laughs> body like above Blob's fist that's holding him, which like Ragdoll is easily gonna slip out of, by the way. And he's just gonna cartwheel down Blob's outstretched arm to his head, which he sits on, you know, just wrapping his legs around his eyes so the Blob can't see. And Ragdoll's gonna just pull out his knife and just start stabbing Blob, like, right in the face repeatedly. That's pretty violent, but it's not gonna do anything. Uh, you know, Ragdoll probably thinks his blade is gonna go, like, through Blob's cheek or wherever, but it's not going to happen. It's like stabbing impenetrable jello. Mm -hmm. Think of it that way. Yeah. So Blob's rubbery skin doesn't break. Yeah, I mean, but like Blob's probably laughing at this or like insulting Ragdoll or something. And that's when like, bam, Ragdoll just stabs him right in the tongue because Blob's mouth was open. <laughs> not laughing now, are we? <laughs> that's going to piss Blob off. So like he spits out some blood and he's just fuming angry you know, bright red like a tomato. He's gonna yank Ragdoll off of him again, and he's just gonna straight up hurl that guy a quarter mile into the air. Oh, like straight up? Yeah, yeah, okay. and then Ragdoll falls to his death. 
I mean, okay, okay, so like Ragdoll, he falls and he slams to the ground and his limbs are all crooked and bent. Definitely looks like he's dead. Yeah, because he's dead. Or is he? <laughs> now as the blob like waddles over to inspect, Ragdoll's just gonna wait until Blob gets close before he wraps his arms around one of Blob's legs and then wraps his legs around the other. He's just gonna trip Blob up and, and cause him to fall over. And like, since Blob is so big and has such a strong personal gravity, he's gonna hit that ground like real hard. I mean, no, like Ragdoll may have caused Blob to lose his balance, but Blob is made out of like blubber, you know, he's bouncy. So. If Blob falls over, you know, like onto his stomach, his fat is just going to bounce him right back to his feet. Like not a big thing at all. And as he's back to standing, that's when the Blob shifts his mass down to his ankles, uh, which causes his ankles to swell and grow and make them just way too wide for Ragdoll to keep his arms and legs wrapped around him. So Ragdoll is going to be forced to let go of Blob's legs. And that's when Blob just stomps his ass with this thunderous stomp which is increased in power via the increased gravity field. Yeah, I mean, because like once Ragdoll lets go of one of Blob's ankles, it's just gonna like rubber band slingshot him out of the way of Blob's stomp, right? Ragdoll, he's gonna use that momentum by turning himself into like a wheel by curving his whole body into a circle shape, like by grabbing his ankles. So he's rolling circles around Blob and Blob's probably gonna keep trying to stomp him. But since Blob's blind spot is so big, He's not gonna see it when Ragdoll flip jumps back onto Blob's shoulders. And that's when he's gonna like yank and stretch out one of Blob's nostrils and then take his knife <laughs> in his other hand and just shove that right up into Blob's brain. Like oh, before damn. Blob even knows what hits him. Like this is all one like fluid, swift motion. So like, yeah, Blob's brain is stabbed and match over. I feel like that was a lot of moves for Ragdoll in succession. Combo. Like, Blob is going to react to what Ragdoll's doing way before that knife goes up his nose. So, like, even when Ragdoll is stretching open Blob's nostril, Blob's just going to yank Ragdoll off his shoulders, and he's just done with this guy. And with Ragdoll in his hands, he's just going to rip him in half. That's when the match is over. No, except we've already established that, like, the Blob's mitts are just, like, too big and fat. Like, Ragdoll can easily slip out of his grasp. Except this time, the Blob shifts his mass into his hands to, like, fill out any gaps that are in his grasp. So it's like Ragdoll's, like, encased in cement. There's, like, no cracks that Ragdoll can take advantage of and slip through. And, you know, with Blob's increased strength, Ragdoll's not getting out of this one. He gets ripped in half. Or, you know, Blob gets stabbed in the brain. Either or. Yo, go ahead and leave it there. Either Ragdoll shoves his knife up Blob's nostril, or Blob traps Ragdoll in his hands and rips him in half. We'll go ahead and find out which of these scenarios happens after inputting the stats on these characters and running the simulations and coming back with a winner. Let's do it. Okay, so you mentioned early on that uh, you thought Ragdoll was going to beat the Blob in several categories, including like intelligence. But it turns yeah. out that Ragdoll's not terribly much more intelligent than the Blob. No, but he was far more evasive. We said he was faster because he can run on all fours, basically. And he was better at fighting. Yet Ragdoll was slightly more versatile as well. However, I was correct in saying that the Blob was going to come out better in the durability and strength stats but also the damage stat as well. Blob is basically those three things incarnate in one character. He is the ultimate tank character, essentially. 
It was interesting, though, that Ragdoll actually came out higher in durability than I thought he was going to. Like, he's quite the tank himself. Yeah, there's been instances where he's been, like, shot in the back, and it hasn't even, like, really phased him too much. It's crazy. This is a pretty good matchup, but considering all the stats, Jonathan, who do you think is going to win this one? I think Ragdoll has a pretty good chance of taking this. I think it'll be close, but I think he has a chance, which will probably surprise most people, considering the fact that our Instagram poll takers voted 67% in favor of the blob. But I'm just going to chalk that up to popularity and say that most of them are pretty big fans of the X-Men Evolution cartoon where he was featured. Yeah, that's right. He was a major player in that show. But I have the results here. The winner between Ragdoll and Blob is Blob. Blob won 584 matches out of the 1,000, whereas Ragdoll only won 416. So Blob wins 58.4% of the time compared to Ragdoll's 41.6. That's not actually as close as I thought it was going to be. I thought it was going to be like within the 55 range, but Blob won in the high 50s? That that sucks. Yeah, in the end, even though, you know, Ragdoll had the edge in terms of evasiveness, speed, and fighting, and versatility, the disparity between the durability, strength, and damage stats were just too much for Ragdoll to overcome. Blob is a powerhouse. Yeah, it looks like Blob was maxed out in durability, yeah. whereas Ragdoll wasn't maxed out in anything. Right. Well, kudos, I guess. I don't know. I know there's a lot of Blob fans out there, so congrats to all of you guys. I have to say that you're taking this loss very well. It's kind of upsetting. I was hoping that you'd be like more sad or maybe angry. You know, I think I just like really matured and just become <laughs> much more humble ever since James Gunn called me out on Twitter. So, <laughs> yeah. Thank you, James Gunn. Please come on our show. <laughs> It'll never happen. But at the very least, maybe he saw the show. Maybe he'll give an episode a listen and hopefully he enjoys it. Yeah, that's probably best case scenario right there. You're probably right. But uh, that does it for this duel. Let us know what you thought about the results by writing to us at dynamicduelpodcast at gmail.com or by visiting us on Instagram or Twitter. You can find links to all of our accounts by checking out our show notes or visiting our website, dynamicduel.com. And on our site, you can also find a link to our Patreon page where you can join our Dynamic 2.0 tier and chat with us and fellow listeners, or our Fantastic Four tier, which gets you bonus content each month, or our X-Force tier that makes you an executive producer of this podcast. If you can't join Patreon, you can still support the show by signing up for our e-newsletter, also at dynamicduel.com. In our next episode, which actually releases on Valentine's Day, we have a very Valentine's Day appropriate review of the Harley Quinn, a very problematic Valentine's Day special that's coming out on HBO Max. I'm looking forward to it. It's probably going to be hilarious, and you'll hear our thoughts on it next week. Yeah, I really enjoy the Harley Quinn cartoon series. Again, we reviewed season three like a couple months ago. It was my first time watching the show. I thought it was great. So I'm looking forward to this special coming out in a few days here. Yeah, it'll be nice to get back to the reviews. But uh, that does it for this episode. We want to give a big thanks to our executive producers, Ken Johnson, John Starosky, Zachary Hepburn, Dustin Balcom, Maggie Mathingian, Brandon Estergaard, Nathaniel Wagner, Levi Yaton, Nick Abonto, Austin Wesolowski, AJ Dunkerley, Scott Camacho, and Gil Camacho for helping make this podcast possible. We'll talk to you guys next week. Up, up, and away. True believers.